Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Joe and I are thrilled to welcome Jeremy Bash as our guest today. From 2009 to 2011, Jeremy served as chief of staff at the CIA under Director Leon Panetta, and from 2011 to 2013 as chief of staff at the Department of Defense under Secretary Panetta. A graduate of Georgetown and Harvard Law School, Jeremy was the policy director for national security issues for the 2000 Gore-Lieberman campaign and also served as the chief minority counsel for the House Intelligence Committee under ranking member Congresswoman Jane Harmon. Jeremy Bash, welcome to Words Matter. Great to be here. So special counsel Robert Mueller is now scheduled to appear on July 24th before the House Committee's Judiciary and Select Intelligence in open session. And the length of his testimony, we're still figuring out. Uh, that's one of the, the debated pieces. And we'll we'll talk about Mueller's potential testimony in a minute. But I want to start with the witness himself, because uh, the special counsel indicated at his press conference back in May that he didn't want to comment any further on what the report said. And if he were called or compelled to testify before Congress, he wouldn't go any further than what was written in his submission. And when you served, Jeremy, as staff on the House Intelligence Committee, then FBI Director Mueller testified before your committee. So what kind of witness was he? He was very direct. Uh, I would say almost uh, bland, but it was powerful in the sense that it was a just the facts, ma'am kind of presentation. He doesn't embellish. He's not theatrical. He does uh, provide, however, I think a compelling narrative because his background, his experience, the fact that he isn't political, that he isn't a partisan official really lends credibility to his factual presentation. And I would say that on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democratic, when I was up on Capitol Hill and I was observing Bob Mueller, he had enormous respect from people across the spectrum. And so what do you think we can expect from him on the 24th? Same showing, different day? Yeah, I mean, that is his modality. He he wants to be very factual, very direct, answer questions clearly, succinctly. He will, when he can, I think, refer to his report. But look, let's face it. In a lot of cases, the questions are going to direct him to uh, expose his thought process, uh, explain how he arrived at a conclusion, and answer the fundamental question of why. Why, in his mind, does he think Putin courted Trump? Why did Trump court Putin? Why was Trump so intent on obstructing the investigation? Why were all of these actions taken that are so highly unusual and that seem to so in, in a significant way undermine national security? And I think if you get a national security professional like Bob Mueller talking about that in any detail, it's going to be pretty powerful and pretty compelling. Jeremy, you wear a lot of hats, so I'm going to make you wear a lot of them in the next few minutes. What's Bob Mueller's goal in this hearing and how will he handle not going beyond the contours of the report when everyone in the room is going to want him to? Joe, I think Bob Mueller's goal is to get out of there without making a ton of news. I think he believes that his major contribution is the report. 
And I actually think that he thinks that the report is much more damning than anything he can present orally. I think his whole uh, mode and mentality is read the goddamn report because if you read the report, you will see how incredibly troubling this conduct by the president and his inner circle actually is. I don't need – this is Bob Mueller speaking. I don't need to tell you anything more. I don't need to embellish it. I don't need to narrate it. I don't need to tell you what to think. The facts in this report will lead you to the conclusion that Donald Trump did some very significantly troubling things and that they may constitute high crimes and misdemeanors over to you guys to decide. So I think Bob Mueller's goal really is to highlight the facts, to try to quote unquote play it straight and not to um, make news about his own opinions or his own uh, viewpoints on it. He wants the report to speak for itself. But maybe he'll make news like he did last time by literally just reading what's in the report. And then lo and behold, it was reported as news. It's it's this amazing dynamic, which is the report itself is explosive. The, the actual facts laid out in the 400 plus page report show a president who was hell bent on obstructing justice on misleading, on convincing other people in his inner circle to lie, to lie in memos to the file, to mislead investigators. And so if you just analyze the report, the facts of it, and have Bob Mueller in essence narrate it out, that I think makes for a very compelling hearing. Jeremy, what's the Democrats on each of the committee's strategy and what will constitute from a strategic point of view success or failure? I think the Democrats want to do two important things. Number one is I think they want to have Bob Mueller explain in his own voice and in his own words the gravity of the offenses and the gravity of the conduct. I think if you have a former Marine, a former prosecutor, a former FBI director who's got clear credibility and uh, and the force of his uh, extensive career in law enforcement – explaining that the president did these things and did these things in a troubling fashion. I think just merely that um, that video, that uh, image will be uh, helpful in propelling the Democrats to say this requires further investigation. I think there's a second objective that the Democrats have, which is to try to mine for some new information. Now, what could that new information be? I think it could come in a, in a couple of different forms. First, I think it's going to be important for Bob Mueller uh, to be asked by the Democrats, tell us about whether you agreed with or disagreed with the way Attorney General Bill Barr explained the conclusions of your report. Because, of course, that's not in the report. That's new information. We really haven't heard much from Bob Mueller about it. Second, I think they will ask him about whether or not he thought it was appropriate for the Attorney General to conclude that Donald Trump did not obstruct justice. Third, I think they will ask him whether or not he believes, meaning Bob Mueller believes, that the OLC, Office of Legal Counsel Opinion, uh, written by the Justice Department, was the main factor that prohibited him from finding uh, whether or not Donald Trump committed a criminal offense. Um, and fourth, I think they will ask him whether or not he believes, Bob Mueller believes, that under our constitutional system, it's up to Congress to take the next step to determine whether or not there were high crimes and misdemeanors. feels a little bit like you're saying that the Democrats want to get Mueller talking and there's a risk of the Democrats talking too much. 
Uh, on the other side, would you agree that the Republicans want to do a lot of the talking and try to limit what Mueller says? I think that's a- absolutely right, Joe. I think the Republicans will not only want to chew up a lot of the time, but I think they'll want to attack the whole special counsel investigation. And in fact, I think they'll probably even go a step further and attack the investigation of Trump in the first instance by the FBI. In other words, I think they'll try to undermine the basis for the counterintelligence investigation. They'll try to raise issues like alleged FBI misconduct, uh, the basis for the Carter Page FISA warrant, and whether or not it was appropriate in the first instance for Jim Comey to approve an investigation of the Trump campaign's ties to the Russian Federation. Don't they run a risk there, Jeremy, that the soft-spoken, just-the-facts ma'am, Bob Mueller, kind of calmly blows them out of the water? I think so. But in some respects, Joe, all they kind of want to do is muddy the waters. So if they have a noisy, chaotic hearing, if they start forcing uh, the chairman, Chairman Nadler, to gavel people quiet, if it looks a little bit like a circus, then – I think that redounds to the benefit of the Republicans because they basically say, look, the Democrats are in charge here and it's a circus. And, uh, and this is a partisan show. The more the Republicans can paint this as a partisan fight as opposed to a national security investigation that's somber and serious and factual, I think the more that uh, plays into the Republican hands. Beyond just the Republican approach versus the Democratic approach, we're going to have two different committees taking a crack at this over the course of the day. And mm-hmm. there's a lot in uh, the 448-page report. Jeremy has a copy of it right here on the table, the Washington Post-bound version. It makes a loud thud uh, when he puts it down. Volume one begins with the following. The Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election in sweeping and systematic fashion. Volume two with possible obstruction of justice by President Trump, begins with this. Beginning in 2017, the president of the United States took a variety of actions toward the ongoing FBI investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election and related matters that raised questions about whether he had obstructed justice. So starting with the Judiciary Committee, Mm -hmm. what is Chairman Nadler's goal and focus for his allotted time on the 24th with Mueller? And how is that going to differ from Schiff. I think Chairman Nadler and the Judiciary Committee will focus primarily on volume two, on the obstruction of justice issues. The mandate of the Judiciary Committee in part is to ensure the the uh, the, the preservation of the rule of law, uh, our constitutional system and, and the notion that no person is above the law and that if there's a valid investigation of anybody, including the president, that that can't be obstructed. And so I think Nadler will focus on that. It also is, by the way, um, the part of the the story that involves Donald Trump as president, and so to the extent that they're looking for things that have a tether to impeachment, I think it, they're more interested in the in the volume two. And the third thing is, I would say, is that it's the part that was left hanging. It was kind of the the hanging chad of this episode. <laughs> it, 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 it the the volume two uh, of the Mueller report was the one where he basically said, "I can't decide whether or not he obstructed justice because." It's not my job to do that. That's the job of the Congress. And so that's what I think Nadler is going to focus on. And then I think relatedly, Adam Schiff and the House Intelligence Committee Democrats will focus on primarily volume one to establish really without controversy that Russia attacked our democracy, that Donald Trump requested the attack. He welcomed it. He benefited from it and he rewarded it. 
And I think if they lay that out in clear detail, and there I don't even think they need to have Bob Mueller do a ton of the talking. If they lay that out in clear detail, I think it will advance the narrative that Donald Trump was clearly trying to hide something. So we talked some about the Democrat strategy when he goes uh, before Congress, but I want to talk about the Republican strategy. Joe, I'm sure you have questions on this, too. But talking about the Republican strategy in general, we've seen members go after witnesses like Michael Cohen and others. What's the risk of them being confrontational and treating him too adversarial? And we've already seen comments of certain members on the record saying, you know, I'll treat him or show him to be the open. It was a biological reference, I think, at the time. But Well, well look, I think you know, some Republican strategists might say that, hey, look, we're ahead here. We're, we're winning this. The, the American people a, think that this is ancient history. B, this is not new news. And C, even if it is, impeachment isn't the right remedy. So the more that we create conflict in a hearing, the more that we give fodder for uh, cable TV to, to fire people up, um, the more this issue is going to be what's talked about as opposed to other things. And so some Republican strategists might believe that actually a very uh, noisy confrontational hearing um, only serves to advance the narrative that that this is a, a political defense of the president, not a principled one. I actually think the Republicans aren't going to be able to help themselves. I think they're going to want to attack Bob Mueller because they see his credibility, his nonpartisan approach, his just the facts approach as a mortal threat to the fortunes, the political fortunes of the president. And they believe that they're duty bound to defend the president at all costs, no matter the facts. Jeremy, let's go through a little bit more uh, on the obstruction, and then I want to turn to some of the counter intel stuff. Um, I assume someone's going to press him on why he didn't subpoena the president to testify. Uh, how important is that in the broader context of all of this? That's a double-edged sword, Joe. I've been thinking about that one too. If the Democrats press Bob Mueller and say, you know, why didn't you get the president to talk? And Bob Mueller says, look, the reality is, is we tried. Um, but he said no and we don't want to waste a lot of time litigating this up to the Supreme Court and we fundamentally don't think we needed his testimony to get all the facts. Let's just say that's the dialogue. If the Democrats kind of keep pushing on that, what do they do? Basically, they kind of undermine Mueller. They sort of suggest that Mueller is incomplete. Now, maybe a very nuanced view of that conclusion is that, well, if he's incomplete, we have to pick up the ball and we have more to investigate and that um, the Mueller report isn't the whole story here. OK, I get that. But the, the, the double-edged sword aspect is that, of course, if they undermine Mueller, they're sort of undermining their own witness. Let me switch gears a little bit because I think one of the most interesting things about uh, the entire investigation is what's not in the report. Uh, the the many investigations that have spawned uh, out of it that, you know, whether it's the New York State investigation, whether it is uh, state AGs, whether it's SDNY. Do you think Mueller will address any of that in any using any specifics? And would the Democrats be smart, uh, even though they know they're not going to get Mueller uh, on the record, to start throwing some of that stuff out there? to remind people that there are things like the campaign finance violations, the emoluments, the the tax returns, the foundation uh, mm -hmm. in, in New York. Is there any benefit there for the, for the Democrats? I think there's some benefit, Joe. I think the way the Democrats will phrase that question is, uh, Director Mueller, please tell us all the open investigations of the president that you're aware of that were related to your investigation. 
And he'll probably say something, well, on page X and such in my report, there's a redacted section that explains that there are 13 or 14, 14 open right. matters, 14 open matters. And and he probably won't substantively show too much ankle on it. But I think the mere fact that he will say in his own wor- voice that there are open matters, I think then will allow a Nadler to turn around and say, boy, there's a lot more for us to investigate. We have a lot more to dig into that's clearly not uh, not encompassed by what we're going to be covering here. You mentioned earlier uh, that it'll be important and you want to see uh, members ask about Attorney General. Barr's role and everything that happened after the report, even though Mueller's indicated he doesn't want to talk about it. But we have the press conference, we have his letter, and we have their phone conversations uh, that have been uh, spoken about in in public a couple of times. How hard are the Democrats going to push on those interactions and on the quality or, or his evaluation of Attorney General Barr's conduct? And what's the danger in going too far there? Yeah, I think it really depends on Bob Mueller's demeanor. So just to play this out, if the Democrats say, you know, tell us about how you felt about what Bill Barr did. And Mueller says, well, look, you know, lawyers have disagreements and I disagree and I thought his words didn't exactly capture my sentiment and I wanted people to read the report. And he he sort of downplays it a little bit and basically says it was kind of an honest disagreement. And I think it's going to be harder for the Democrats to keep pushing that issue. However, if Bob Mueller says, I was really concerned that the attorney general was doing something that was misleading, that was inaccurately describing our conclusions, and we hadn't done two years' worth of work in a 448-page report only to have our conclusions misrepresented, and for a presidential appointee, a presidentially appointed attorney general to do that was all the more troubling since the president, of course, was the main subject of the investigation. If Bob Mueller says anything like that, I think that will be explosive. If you had to try to predict, these things are generally um, defined by a moment, uh, a particular question, a particular member. Uh, put your your Kreskin uh, hat on for those of us who are, you know, as close to sixty as I am. Where do you think you know that moment comes from? I think if a member asks Bob Mueller for a kind of personal. Um, no-holds-barred assessment about whether or not the president of the United States conducted himself in a manner consistent with national security and the best interests of America. And if Bob Mueller does something even as small as taking a deep breath in or sitting back in his chair and kind of folding his arms and saying, geez, if there's anything that suggests that Bob Mueller believes that Donald Trump was unpatriotic, even giving aid and comfort to an adversary, I think that's going to be a huge moment. I think it's going to be a moment that will cause a lot of people on Capitol Hill and around the country to say, we have to look into this more. We have no option but to continue to press this issue. Give me a, not necessarily odds, but uh, the likelihood that this it's or or is it impossible to reach the level of hype that we're going to have by the time Bob Mueller raises his hand? There's going to be a ton of anticipation. Eyeballs will be glued. But if uh, if as the day goes on, not much new information is being gleaned, and if there is a sense that um, the Democrats are kind of running out of energy, um, I think it's possible the Republicans say, let's not fuel this. Let's kind of let this go quietly, let the time cl- click away, and they try to change the subject as soon as the hearing is over. 
Now, before we let you go, one of the many hats we want you to put on is your your CIA hat and ask you about uh, the counterintelligence aspect here in volume one. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could just walk us through the facts and your grasp on volume one with your perspective and experience uh, at the CIA. Well, the intelligence community came down in January 2017 with a very startling but direct intelligence assessment, which is that not only had the Russian Federation interfered in the election and attacked uh, our democracy, but they had done so at the direction of Vladimir Putin, that they had done so specifically with the intent to benefit Donald Trump. So it wasn't merely that they wanted to cause chaos in the American uh, political season, but that they favored Trump. They had a reason to favor Trump and that they wanted to, in effect, uh, help Trump in the campaign. And so I think volume one is really the clearest uh, explanation and exposition of all the ways that the Russian intelligence services benefited Donald Trump and all the ways that the Trump campaign in more than 100 different instances had kind of troubling conduct with the Russian Federation. And, you know, one of the big issues that's addressed in volume one, and I think it will likely come up in the hearing, is the role of Mike Flynn, the former national security advisor, who right after the election basically hopped on the phone with the Russian ambassador and began to conduct secret diplomacy even before Donald Trump was inaugurated. So you got to ask yourself, if the Russian Federation supported Donald Trump, if they came in a government delegation to Trump Tower in June 2016, they informed the high command of the Trump campaign, hey, we're here to help. And by the way, what we want in exchange is relief from sanctions. And then they began to get that relief in sanctions and they began to get leverage over American foreign policy. Isn't right there the entire tale of communication, of coordination and a quid pro quo. And and while it clearly did not rise to the level of a violation of criminal law in what the Trump campaign did in obtaining a, quote, thing of value, which is what you have to obtain under the federal election laws to violate the federal election statutes. While they didn't do that, they didn't need to. All they needed to do was say, when we're elected president, when we're in the White House, we're going to help you out because you're helping us out. And that's exactly what they did. So, Jeremy, in particularly in the counterintel in volume one, Mueller and his team expressed some frustration about non-cooperation uh, and about things they just couldn't get to the bottom of. How might that play out in the hearing? Well, I think one of the areas where they're going to press uh, Bob Mueller is what was the role of Don Jr.? Because from the report itself, we don't actually know whether Don Jr. ever provided any evidence to the special counsel. It says that he did not agree to a voluntary interview. And then there is a redacted portion of the report. And the suggestion is, well, maybe he provided grand jury testimony and that grand jury testimony was protected from disclosure under the uh, federal rules of criminal procedure. But we don't know that. And I think we need to understand whether or not Don Jr. provided information to the special counsel and whether they were satisfied with the information they got. Because, of course, it was Don Jr. who received the inquiry from the Russian government delegation. He was the one who famously said, I love it, when told that the Russian government was going to be helping Donald Trump. And he was the one who, according to Michael Cohen, went into Trump's office and told him about the meeting that had occurred. And also Don Jr. would have been in the middle of many of the discussions with WikiLeaks and Roger Stone and the other efforts to weaponize the information that the Russian Federation had stolen. Certainly my impression from looking at the report that volume two answers the questions without uh, coming to a definitive conclusion. 
But volume one seems to leave open a number of questions on the counterintelligence. Is there potential here for new news to break, or are we just going to hear resuscitation of what we already know? Well, again, I think, Joe, if the paradigm is that people know everything in the report, I'm not sure we're going to get new facts. But again, the premise here is that not everybody knows what's in the report. Right. And so the mere recitation of the facts in the report, I think, will seem new to a lot of people. And um, and so I think that's going to be a very important aspect of it. I think with respect to volume one, the headline is going to be that the Trump campaign welcomed the support of the Russian government and that that is a very shameful, unpatriotic and significant breach of national security. I would certainly expect a Democrat to – and I, I know Mueller won't answer, but just asking the question – I would ask, do you think the Russians tipped the election to Trump and and stole the election from Hillary Clinton? He won't have an answer, but I think just leaving that out there uh, is very damaging to Trump and will get under his skin in a way that I don't think we can imagine. And the tweeting will start before the hearing's over. I think that's probably dead on, Joe. Um, I also think that with respect to volume two, the big moment probably will come if Bob Mueller says something to the effect of, look, the Department of Justice policies prohibited me, prohibited me from de- making a determination whether or not this conduct that I've outlined was criminal. I believe it was wrongful. I believe it raised significant questions of criminality. However, that ultimate decision is not mine to make. That's yours, Mr. Chairman, to make. And if I think if he does that, which is, by the way, the the import of what he said during his nine-minute press statement um, several weeks ago, if he says that, I think that will be also a big moment. The problem with volume two is that Bob Mueller stated his conclusion in a double negative. He said the president did right. not not obstruct justice. Now, I, I barely understand double negatives. And I think most people get confused by them. In effect, what he was saying was the president did obstruct justice, but in order for me to find that there is a criminal violation, I would have to overturn DOJ policy. I can't do that. Over to Congress. What about uh, Devin right. Nunes, who has been uh, one of Trump's staunchest defenders and supporters? What do you expect from him that day? I think we can expect uh, from from the ranking member of the Intelligence Committee the same that we've seen since the beginning of the Trump administration, which is uh, an effort to audition for executive branch jobs, a uh, an effort to show the president well, just opened up exactly exactly <laughs> an effort to show the president that he's loyal. Um, And I think it's frankly going to be pretty clownish. I asked Jeremy before we walked in the room if he thought he actually was going to testify on the 24th. But I'll ask again now that the mics are on. You think this is really going to happen or is the can going to get kicked again? I think it's going to happen, although I think there's another aspect to this we should we should touch on, which is this issue of time limits and the issue. I wanted to ask about that, actually. The issue of 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 constraining the time. Yep. I kind of think it's a mistake for the Democrats to be agreeing to time limits. I think their approach should be we've subpoenaed a government official. He will be here as long as it takes to answer every single one of our questions. Nothing could be more important. Nothing could be more urgent as we prepare ourselves for the 2020 elections. We have a number of questions. This is a highly detailed two-year investigation, a 400-plus page report. 
There's nothing compelling us to wind this up quickly or rush this through. That's a Republican tactic uh, to get this out of the headlines. But we're not interested in headlines. We're interested in the truth. We're going to take as much time as we need. I know that uh, Hillary Clinton in the 11th hour of her Benghazi hearing probably would agree with that, Jeremy. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think uh, if she can handle it, uh, he can handle it. And and we know he can handle it. Uh, And I think the Democrats at times here have demonstrated uh, a lack of boldness uh, and a lack of understanding the leverage they have. So I hope they, they won't do that. Let me try to wrap this up with a question that kicks it forward. Uh, Let's assume that the movie gets better reviews than the book uh, and it raises a lot of questions. And some of the Democrats uh, in Nancy Pelosi's caucus uh, start uh, moving more towards impeachment. And we have the, you know, the 12 new subpoenas. Give me a sense of what you think is going to happen next, uh, starting with the subpoenas of uh, the new witnesses that are all you know, very relevant. They are the fact witnesses here, everyone from Mike Flynn to Jared Kushner to David Pecker. How do you see this process playing out? I think the Republicans and the Trump White House have concluded that there's no price for defying the subpoenas. And so unfortunately, I think this has got to go to court. I think this has got to go to court fast. I think the approach of the Democrats should be, we're giving you a subpoena. You have 48 hours to tell us what time you'll be here. And if you don't tell us what time you'll be here, we're going to we're going to take this to court to enforce this. And yes, the litigation will take some time. But I think it's fundamentally important for Congress to exert its, uh, its Article I prerogatives here. And I think only the courts can do that. And then we're going to see whether or not Trump really is a, a strongman president, whether he's actually going to defy judicial orders in addition to congressional uh, oversight. Well, let me let me just follow up on that last question. Is he the strongman president who will uh, defy judicial or is he the president who last week backed down on the census? I think the president is going to press as far as he can go and he's going to dig in. And I wouldn't be surprised if he directs his team to defy judicial orders. And then what, what does Nancy Pelosi do? Well, and again, I think there, Joe, uh, she's going to be under increasing pressure if he is defying judicial orders to uh, to bring to a head the issues of whether or not uh, high crimes and misdemeanors in the sense of the president's refusal to comply are present. And, and I don't know how that's going to play out. Honestly, none of us does. But I think it's going to build pressure on her. He's indicated that he'll defy judicial orders to a certain extent, but not all the way up to the top. I think that's what we saw with the census when Justice Roberts spoke. At least his attorney general seemed to get him to back down. So maybe it's just when the nine come in that he will be the well, other guy. The one difference here is that the the census was something that was politically important to him. This investigation is something that's personally important to him. And the stakes are a thousand times uh, higher. Mm -hmm. The good news, though, uh, Jeremy, is the longer this plays out, the more Philippe and I can debate this issue because, (laughs) you know, it's 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 a show we want to take on the road. (laughs) All right, Jeremy. Well, we'll see if Mueller actually does testify on the 24th. But if he does, we have a great preview of what's to come. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So, Joe, we want to find out what else is on your mind. Last week, you wrote a column for CNN about the political dangers of the Medicare for all without private insurance proposals supported by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Talk about the risks and what you think 
is the best path for Democrats to maintain their advantage with voters on health care going into 2020? The biggest advantage Democrats have uh, is not that Donald Trump is involved with Russia and the Mueller report. It's on health care. And I think, um, you know, after a rocky start, Obamacare has become something that people depend on. They don't want to lose. They're not willing to give it up without uh, understanding um, what a new plan would be for them. Something like 150 million Americans who depend on and use private insurance. And the idea that somehow that we would just take that away and move to a completely different system, I think, is deeply unpopular uh, with the public and opens the Democrats up to uh, attacks that I don't think they'll be able to sustain. So let me back up for a second. Medicare for all means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But the people who are really providing the energy behind it are Senator Sanders, uh, Senator Warren, and sometimes Senator Harris. She's been on both sides of this. She will have to clarify uh, her position. And both of those uh, senators say that they want to uh, immediately abolish the private insurance market and just provide Medicare for everyone, and it would be paid for with additional payroll taxes. Uh, and then they, the savings would come from what people save in not having to pay premiums and co-pays and that sort of thing. Most of the Democratic field, though, is against that, and I, and I think that's the right thing. They support uh, various versions of what Mayor Pete Buttigieg very cleverly called Medicare for those who want it. And it's basically providing uh, a transition uh, period where people can keep their private insurance or they can opt into what may be better service and cheaper service from Medicare, but you were given that choice. The numbers on this are, are really interesting. I, I looked at a couple of polls this week in, in preparing the op-ed. Among Democrats, 64% support Medicare for all. But you start telling them some of the things I just told you, and the support goes down to about 22%. So you add Republicans to the mix there, and I just don't think it's sustainable. So I, I, I think this is a critical issue uh, for Democrats. And my biggest fear, I wrote in the article, is that um, if Sanders or Warren or Bill de Blasio, by some miracle, gets the nomination and they push for this, uh, it gives the Republicans an advantage on health care and starves the Democrats of their best issue. So I think Medicare for all, as defined by Sanders and Warren, is a political loser. I think the idea of moving towards the single-payer option has uh, merit, but there's got to be in politics, uh, if you want voters to vote for you, you've got to put in place the benefit uh, that uh, that takes care of them before you take something away from them. And I think Democrats are on a real risk here if if that's what the party platform is going forward. You've been busy writing because you also wrote a column for CNN about Joe Biden and the race for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. I want to quote from the piece you wrote, quote, the Democratic victory in 2018 was the result of center left Democrats winning against more left wing opponents in primaries. According to the Third Way think tank, 33 of the 40 Democrats who won in swing districts defeated someone on their left on primary day. 
How does Biden make the case to Democratic primary voters who seem to be more to the left of those in swing districts? Well, it's interesting. I mean, some of this is the media. Some of this is kind of the electricity that's generated uh, by some of the freshman progressives like AOC and Ariana Presley. Uh, and again, I think they're all doing wonderful work because Democrats aren't going to win without the progressive wing being just as excited as as the middle of the party. But to say the party has is lurching to the left is just not supported by the facts. Uh, the facts show that the strength in numbers in the party is in the middle. Uh, and that's what 2018 was all about. And I think Biden's campaign understands that. Some of the other campaigns, Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, some others uh, understand that. But part of the problem is the, the media keeps playing up the far left wing and the lurching. And media coverage does dictate to a certain extent how these campaigns play out. The win is in the middle uh, and doing it in a way that you bring progressives along with you. I think it it doesn't work the opposite way where, uh, you know, someone who has lurched far to the left uh, hopes that moderates will come along with them in the general election. These two issues are very much related, though, these these two pieces, because, you know, I think there there is a chance to lose the general election in the primary system. And I think there is a chance to make sure that we have a very good chance of winning the general election in the primary. But ultimately, it's going to be up to the voters. So I've, I've singled out Elizabeth Warren here uh, on the Medicare for all issue. She's also running the most dynamic campaign uh, of any of the candidates. And campaigns are, are, are won and their their votes are earned. And uh, voters, as much as they think defeating Donald Trump is the single most important thing, they are looking at all of these candidates. Uh, so, you know, it's certainly my hope, putting candidates aside, that Democrats don't forget that uh, the people in the middle win elections. And last but not least, I don't want to let you go without asking you about this. Last week, we saw the resignation of Labor Secretary Alex Acosta, who, as U.S. attorney in the Southern District of Florida, handled the plea deal with registered sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Does Acosta's resignation end the political fallout for the Trump administration on this issue? No, I don't think so. I think there's several levels of this. One is the secret you know, backroom deals that were cut for Jeffrey Epstein through the nexus of the Kirkland and Ellis law firm. You know, Alex Acosta worked there, Ken Starr worked there and worked for Jeffrey Epstein. It's also Bill Barr's former law firm. It's Brett Kavanaugh's former law firm. It 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 highlights what I think is the corruption of the cronyism, not just in our political system, but in our legal system. The deal was uh, unconscionable based on what we know, based on what they knew then. So getting Acosta to leave from a day-to-day perspective helps a little bit uh, for Trump. But it, but overall, and in a larger sense, it doesn't help at all. Uh, and the story is not over because it does play into the kind of people Trump admires the kind of people Trump wants to hang around with, and the kind of behavior that Trump condones. As a country, we've all been horrified over the last week to 10 days about what Jeffrey Epstein has done as far as young women and sexual assault. Well, 
we have a president of the United States who's on the Access Hollywood tape talking about how much he likes sexual assault and how power, and again, that's where Jeffrey Epstein was able to abuse these women. Again, it's about power. You have the president of the United States on record talking about how he is able to use his power to impose his will sexually on women. And I think that is a terrible reminder uh, for the public who this may have receded in their mind. And I do think that there's many more elements of the story that are going to come out. None of it could be good for Trump. And at a certain point, someone like the character of Jeffrey Epstein uh, may look to make a deal and may want to talk some more about his relationship with the president. So none of this is good. It's a very untimely reminder of the character flaws of the president and the idea that the country knew all this and made up their mind uh, and it's all okay is not the case. I think the country was processing this. They were dealing with Hillary Clinton, who the right wing had successfully smeared, and they, they made a choice because they thought they didn't have a choice. They're going to have a choice in 2020, and the president's character flaws will be on display and will be part of what the public uh, takes into account when they vote this time. And they, the Democrats will not be running someone that I, th- I believe will be, will be demonized like Hillary Clinton was. Uh, so I think all around, this story sticks around and it's terrible for the president. All right, Joe, thanks for telling us what's on your mind this week. We'll talk again next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.